let's start with the peace invocation om bhadram karne bhishnu yamadeva bhadram pashye makshabhirya jatrah sthirai rangai stushtvagam sastanobhih vyashemadevahitayadayuh swastina indro vridhashravah swastina pusha vishvaveda swastina starksho arishtanemih swastino brihaspatir dadhato om shanti 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 so we um stopped last time i think at the 10th verse come come we stopped last time at the 10th verse of this second chapter we are doing mandukya karika if you remember <laughs> um the mandukya karika has uh, four chapters if you remember we have done the first one the first one includes the upanishad the original text and the karika themselves are of course the um commentary by the great advaita master gaudapada uh, in verse form and on the whole thing the upanishads the karika all together uh, shankaracharya has written a a commentary uh, in uh, sanskrit uh, uh, bhashya so gaudapada's commentary four uh, chapters first chapter is called the agama prakarana the section dealing or the chapter dealing with the upanishad the the original text um, the second chapter is what we are doing now vaitathya prakarana it is the chapter dealing with um, falsity the chapter deals with falsity chapter is not false <laughs> it deals with the falsity of the of the world appearance that it is an appearance it's not a reality out there it's a it's an appearance that's what it tries to prove the message of vedanta uh, advaita vedanta is always the same in whatever text you take up brahman alone is real is the absolute reality the world is an appearance thereof of brahman it's an appearance and what are we we are nothing else we are nothing other than brahman we are the absolute that absolute reality brahman is you if you would know yourself as you truly are so that's the whole teaching and in this um, text the upanishadic teaching is first given in the first chapter the second chapter uses logic reasoning to demonstrate this rather startling claim and it makes many people uncomfortable that how is this world false and if it's really false then what's real uh, so it uses logic and experience to demonstrate instead of quoting upanishads instead of saying that the scriptures say so hence uh in the second chapter we go through an exercise based on logic and experience the third chapter is called advaita prakarana the chapter on non duality where again logic and experience are used to demonstrate the the non duality of this dualistic experience i'm using words carefully we have a dualistic experience dualistic experience means i am the experiencer and this is the experienced and it cannot be otherwise experience must have this character but what is the reality here 
Am I really separate from all of this? Are all things separate from each other? Is it a pluralistic, dualistic universe at core? Or is it one reality? So that is the non-dual reality that is demonstrated again not by quoting scripture but by logic and experience. Third chapter. And the fourth chapter which is picturesquely named Alata Shanti Prakarana, the chapter on the quenching of the firebrand which is a buddhistic allusion. Um, that is a, a miscellany of subjects. A lot of things are discussed there. So, But that's still a long way off. Right now we are uh, in, the, in the middle of the second chapter, Vaitatya Prakarana, the chapter which aims to demonstrate the illusoriness, the falsity of what we consider to be concretely real. Now, in this chapter, the strategy that Gaudapada has adopted um, is based on the experience of dreaming. Remember, this um, text, Mandukya, it approaches the same Advaita Vedanta, non-dual Vedanta, but its unique method is the method of the analysis of the three states. Waking, dreaming, deep sleep. So by an analysis of these three states, the claim is that we can discover the reality about ourselves and the reality is nothing other than that we are the absolute. The absolute truth of this universe is our own reality. And this can be discovered by an investigation into the, our experiences of waking, dreaming and deep sleep. Now, in the second chapter, he uses the example of dreaming to demonstrate the falsity of our waking experience also. That dreams are false, we, we accept it. We don't uh, take dreams seriously that way. We know that it didn't happen. We, we saw those dreams, of course we saw it. that happened. We were sleeping and we saw the dreams. But in the dreams, it seemed to be that we are in a different place, meeting people, things are happening, good and bad. And when we wake up, we deny all of that. What do we say? We saw it, but it didn't really happen. It was a dream. That's what we say. Dreams are false. Using the example of dreams, Gaudapada now wants to show equally so um, this waking experience is also an appearance. But the distinction must be, must be understood that dreams are false with respect to waking. From our waking state, when we look back upon our dreams, we deny their reality. We say that it's not real, it, it didn't happen. I saw it, but it didn't happen. It's not real. And the waking is false with respect to Turiya, the ultimate reality. Remember, they all have a a, a certain relative reality. Dreams seem real and everything seems to work when you are in the dream. They have a certain use. So you are, suppose you are thirsty in a dream, you drink water. Dream water will satisfy dream thirst. So that kind of use is there. Similarly, in the waking world, if you are hungry, eat food, it will satisfy your hunger. It's not that uh, an enlightened person will not feel hungry in this world or not that I know the world is false, so no, no matter how I keep it, how much I keep eating, it doesn't satisfy my hunger. Nothing so crazy is going to happen. The, the um, practical use will continue. But you realize that in depth it's not real. Um, so, okay. So, what have we done before we go ahead? In the first 10 verses, what did we do? What did we see? So, the strategy used by Gaurapada is using the 
dream uh, example, example of the dream to demonstrate the falsity of the waking experience. Before doing that, he makes sure that we know that dreams are false. We say, yeah, go on, I know, I agree that dreams are false, it's common sense, but no, not common sense. Tell me why dreams are false. Take a moment, stop and ask yourself, why do you naturally say, it's, oh, it's false? What are the logical, philosophical, we're doing philosophy here, you must, even something that's obvious, you must argue it out. Why, is, why are dreams false? And he gives us reasons why dreams are false. If you remember, this, this was the first verse, second verse of the second chapter. Um, one is, that means uh, the, the cause, the reason is why dreams are false is that you, the, uh, because the space is not logical. What does that mean? What you saw, the places you visited, I walked in the Central Park and uh, um, well, I woke up and so I'm in my bed and the whole thing was imagined in my head. Now Central Park and all the lakes and the sky and the people, all of them couldn't fit inside the head. So I didn't really see anything there. Because the space is, is uh, not enough. You can't fit elephants and uh, buildings and the Empire State Building inside your uh, uh, head. So you saw your, it all here, in there. But of course, it might sound like a very childish reason, but it still works. B basically, why do we think that it never happened? Because of incongruity in space and time. I am here, I am not in Central Park. Another reason he gives, time incongruity. I was in Mumbai, I talked to people and suddenly I wake up here in Manhattan. Obviously I couldn't have gone to Mumbai and come back last night within those uh, few hours. So I did not go to Mumbai. Now, these are logical reasons to trying to prove the obvious. We, we know it, it didn't happen. But these are reasons. Given the way we understand space and time, those experiences could not have occurred. Right? Suppose uh, you are, uh, you know, sometimes you suffer from jet lag and you're disoriented and uh, you think you're still in Mumbai when you come back from Mumbai and here and you wake up and you think you're in Mumbai and then you suddenly say you are here. Now that was a real experience. It was dreamlike because uh, you have tra traveled across time zones and you're disoriented. But it really happened because if you calculate the time, yes, you could have actually gone to Mumbai, it did, did happen. You traveled across so many uh, hours and so and so forth. Do you see what I'm driving at here? Um, all this is not necessary because we accept it implicitly. Dreams did not happen. And we saw them, but they did not happen. Now, having settled that, Gaurapada now moves on. He makes a very dramatic move, which we saw last time in verses 4, 5, 6, um, that now I get it, dreams are false. Why do you think this is false? And he gives two reasons. These are simple but very powerful reasons, if, uh, worth thinking about. Um, come. The claim is, the waking experience is not real, apart from the experiencing consciousness. Why? Yeah. Two reasons. Drishyatva and Anityatva. Drishyatva means, because it's an object of experience. What does that mean? 
if something appears within your experience and apart from your experience there is no way of knowing that thing exists then you must think that that thing somehow depends on that experience you see it works like this a pot and clay um, the pot has no existence apart from the clay you would agree to with that um, the pot seems very real but it seems very real because it is the clay itself in that particular form if you say that the pot is an object apart from the clay then uh, it's not really an object apart from the clay its existence is entirely dependent on the clay you say we know that yes but as we use it and talk about it and deal with it it becomes there's a word for it reification reification means it becomes it gets construed into as if it's an independent real entity in our minds the reality is clay but we forget all about the clay it disappears from our um, awareness as, as it were and it takes on an identity as a pot but the pot has no existence apart from the clay the reason is you cannot experience the pot apart from the clay you cannot show the two things apart i've, I've given this reasoning earlier that uh, two things are real and independent and separate from each other if you can experience them separately so the cap and the pen go together but they are independent realities because you can see experience the pen separately and the cap separately hence they are two separate things they usually go together but that does not mean they are one and the same thing but the same thing is not true of the pot of the clay pot uh, it's not two things which go together it is one thing only appearing as another the pot is a name the pot is a form the pot is use name form and use nama rupa vyavahara but the substance is the clay the name and the form the name pot the form of the pot and the use of the pot none of it is possible without the clay would you agree with me why am i going on about pots and uh, clay and all because now apply it to consciousness and the world experienced in consciousness the waking world experienced in consciousness cannot be experienced in any other way it is obvious because experience means always experience in consciousness how else would you experience anything whatever is an experience in your life is experienced by you in your awareness in your consciousness you either see it or hear it or smell it or taste it or touch it or think about it or remember it or, or desire it or like it or hate it whatever it's all happening in the awareness that you are apart from this where is the world our common sense approach is the world exists and then i bring my awareness to it and i get an experience that's our common sense approach here the godapad is raising the question apart from awareness apart from knowledge apart from experience or consciousness i'm using these words generally where do you experience a world where have you experienced whether it is science or music or art so bill sometimes uh, he puts he is not here right now he puts this question no no swami that's not right uh, we'll have suppose i put a camera here and it's recording this room and we all leave this room nobody is looking at the room 
And when we come back, we see the room is there. The camera picture shows that the room is there. It's not that it disappeared when we were not looking at it. I'm not saying that. Uh, what I'm saying is, when you see that, that experiment, it was devised in your awareness. The results of that experiment are also obvious to you in that awareness. Everything happens in that awareness. That's what I'm saying. Whether this external world exists or not, that, is, that question is a Berkeleyan idealism, subjective idealism question. But that's, a, that's not what Vedanta is talking about. Vedanta is perfectly compatible with realism. But it's talking about something deeper. Only thing is, so waking, the dream world does not exist when you wake up. Correct. It didn't exist then also. It appeared when you were seeing it. When you don't see it, it doesn't exist. That's true. But we are not saying that the waking world disappears the moment you turn away from it. What we are saying is, the waking world has no reality apart from the, the fourth, the Turiya, the consciousness. When you wake up from a dream, the dream is falsified. With respect to the waking world, the dream is not true. With respect to Turiya, the waking world, not only the waking world, the dream world, all of it is not true. So that is the, uh, I will not go further into it because we have discussed it already. The, that is the first, um, the first, uh, the reason which, of two reasons. First one which Gaurapada gives, that Drishyatva, because it's an object of your awareness, there's no other way of experiencing that object except through awareness. It could be a scientific awareness, it could be an artistic awareness, it could be a philosophical awareness, it could be sense awareness, seeing, hearing, smelling. But through consciousness only, in consciousness only, you experience these things. That's all they're saying. Because of that, this world it does not have an independent, separate reality. This is the meaning of falsity in Advaita Vedanta, which has no independent reality of its own. This chair and, uh, say, two wooden chairs. Each chair is, uh, uh, there, there are two chairs, we count chairs. If you are counting chairs, there are two. But if you are counting the wood, the material out of which it is made, there is only one, that is, that is wood. That means the chairs are not independent realities apart from the constituent wood. So with respect to the wood, the chairs are very much real. If you sit on them, you can sit, it won't fall to the floor. But with respect to the wood, they are not separate realities. Similarly, with um, respect to consciousness, this waking world is not a separate reality. This is, what, this is the first argument that Gaudapada gives. He just says, because of it being an object of consciousness, therefore it's not a re uh, the world is not uh, absolutely real. That's what he says, not satyam. In, in fact, he doesn't even say that. He says, because of the well-known reason. So, well-known well reason, <laughs> all this explanation is necessary. Then the second reason he gives is, because it is impermanent. Because it is impermanent. Now, this reason is, it's, um, it's more easier to understand, because we know things are impermanent, but, but how, does, how does it make it false? How is a thing false if it is impermanent? There's a difference between falsity and impermanence. Impermanence, how do we understand it? A thing is born and it dies. It is created and is destroyed, produced and, and lost then. But before, uh, but during the time when it was created and it, exist, it existed for some time, th there's a difference between, uh, say, a snake and a rope appearing as a snake. 
right? We say one is impermanent. Yes, the snake is born of an egg and after some time the snake will die. A real snake. But still it's real. And the rope which appears as a snake, that snake, the classic example in Advaita Vedanta, that snake is false. It didn't exist earlier. It won't exist later. And even when you are seeing it, it's still false. Because it's, you're mistaking a rope for a snake. There's no snake there. But how can you say that there is, this snake is false? It's impermanent. It's imper what, what do I mean by impermanent? It's born, it will die. Like anything else, it will die. So why is impermanent equated to falsity? Things are impermanent, everybody agrees. People are born, people die. Things are created, they're destroyed. Found and lost. So it happens all the time. But why is this equated? How is impermanence an argument for the ultimate falsity of things? That they are the appearances. The logic is pretty simple. But it's, uh, it took me quite some time to grasp it for what they were trying to say. But it's elegant and simple, but very unsettling. You see, what is impermanent? Remember, what is falsity? Falsity is not having independent existence. If, if it is something else appearing as something else, then that something else is false. If it is a pot, if it's, if it's clay appearing as a pot, and the pot has no existence apart from the clay, then we are claiming that the pot is false. Not as it is, but apart from the clay it is false. In itself the pot is false. Not the uh, clay part of it. In, in that way we are claiming. Not having independent existence is falsity. Hold on to that. Alright? Then the argument is impermanent things are false in this sense. How? After all, after all, the argument is what is impermanence? You know, being created and destroyed. So, um, example I've given is and the, the example of fire and the heat. If you remember, a potato is boiled. The potato is hot. But the, is the potato intrinsically hot? No. It got its heat from the boiling water. Is the water intrinsically hot? No. It was cold earlier. Now it's boiling and hot. After some time, leave it on the table. It will become cold again. It's not hot by itself. It got its heat from the hot pan. Is the hot pan intrinsically hot? Hot by itself? No. It got its heat from the fire underneath. Uh, it was cold, the pan was cold earlier, the water was cold earlier, the potato was cold earlier. They all borrowed their heat. Now this borrowing of heat, it's from fire. Is fire intrinsically hot? Remember, this is an example. Is fire intrinsically hot? Yes. As long as fire burns, the way we understand fire, it must be hot. And it can lend its heat to others also. As long as it exists, it's hot. Alright. Now, from this example, what do we take? That some things may be borrowed. And some things may be intrinsic. Some properties may be borrowed. Some properties may be intrinsic. If it's, a, if it's something borrowed, one sign will be that it will be gained and lost. If you borrow something, borrowed money, credit. We are well known in Manhattan. <laughs> and somebody said, you never really know who is really rich. Because everybody is spending a lot of money and everybody seems to be rich. But there's a difference. If it's borrowed money, at one time or the other you have to pay it back. It is lost. What is borrowed is gained and lost. What is intrinsic is always there. And think where is the, all this leading? Here's the point. Suppose that here we are talking about heat. Suppose we are talking about existence. 
Borrowed heat, the thing will be cold earlier, hot in the middle and cold later on. Intrinsically hot, hot earlier, hot now, hot later on. Now, existence. Suppose something borrows existence, what will happen to it? You tell me. It dies. It is born. It didn't exist. Comes into existence and loses existence. Gains existence, loses existence. Gains heat, loses heat. Gains existence, loses existence. Gains existence is just a fancy way of saying born or created. Loses existence is a way of saying destroyed or dies. Things which borrow existence, they will be impermanent. Being born and dying, being created and destroyed, what does it mean? Impermanent. What is impermanence? Didn't exist, won't exist. In between, exists. Gaudapada is trying to say, seems to exist in between. Now, it is borrowed existence means it will be born and dies. It will be, be produced and destroyed. In other words, it will be impermanent. Impermanent is equal to borrowed existence. Are you with me so far? Then it's done. Impermanent is equal to borrowed existence. Borrowed existence is equal to falsity by our definition earlier. No? I don't know. I was um, thrilled by this. <laughs> uh, what is falsity? What did we define it as? Um, borrowed, uh, that, that it does not exist, it does not have its independent existence. So, borrowed existence is equal to falsity. Therefore, impermanent means false. Permanent, that means it is intrinsically existing. What is permanent? Consciousness is permanent. And we all, all saw this in the first chapter, that waking, dreaming, deep sleep keep coming and going, but the consciousness is the bare consciousness itself, pure consciousness itself is constant. The waker comes and goes, the dreamer comes and goes, the deep sleeper comes and goes, and their respective worlds come and go. But the, the ground, the awareness, the bare awareness is always there. That itself appears as waker and waker's world, dreamer and dreamer's world, deep sleeper and the deep sleeper's blankness. So, consciousness is real by this, this argument, but what it experiences those things are impermanent, therefore unreal. Impermanence is equal to falsity. This is a big claim of Advaita Vedanta. What, how does it work? Because of borrowed existence. Impermanence means borrowed existence. Borrowed existence is the very definition of falsity in Advaita Vedanta. Mithyatva means satta. Satta means existence is borrowed from something else. For these two reasons, what are the two reasons? All of this discussion in Sanskrit is put in two words. Sanskrit is very powerful that way, uh, philosophically. Drishyatva, Anityatva. This suffix tva means because of that. Uh, or, or, uh, no, not because of that. The, the quality of having that. Tva. Drishyatva means because it is an, uh, the quality of being experienced, because it is experienced, because of its experienceability, it's false. Anityatva means because of uh, it, it is uh, its uh, impermanence, impermanent nature, transient nature. Because of these reasons, even the waking world, everything in fact, waking, dreaming, deep sleep, all of them, they are all mithya or false.
what a radical claim. This world is, this is real. This pen is real. Why? Oh, because I see it. And Advaita has the gall, the chutzpah, to, to actually use this very reason. Yes, because you see it, it must be false. There's no other way. It has to be false because you see it. What is real? You the seer. And it, it works. These two hold absolutely true for dream. All dream experiences are experienced and they are impermanent. And these, are, this, these characteristics are shared by all waking experiences also. They are experienced and impermanent. Because you experience it, that's why it's false. Do you see it? Yes, it's false. But I saw it, it was there. Hence it's false. I'm not denying that you saw it. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Delightful, isn't it? <laughs> now, even if you take it intellectually, it's uh, <laughs> a delightful move. Uh, but if you take it in actual experience, you can note it in your experience. There's the one thing that has remained constant in all your life. What is that? You. What? Which you? You, the consciousness. Not the body. Body has changed. Not the mind. The mind has changed so much. Likes, dispositions, memories, desires, all have changed. And will keep on changing. And let alone the world. The world has changed tremendously. So everything in your experience has changed in your life. Except you, the experiencer. By you, the experiencer, I don't mean the person. The person has also changed. I mean you, the bare awareness. Alright. Uh, so... What is the standard? Very quickly summarizing, moving on. Next few verses, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. What happened? If you ask Gaurapada, oh, well, all right then. Oh, by the way, impermanence. Um, I got a very interesting invitation from uh, the Rubin Museum. They want, they have a theme, you know, they specialize in Buddhist art. So they have a theme this year, impermanence. So they want me to go and speak to their staff. It's a closed um, door event about impermanence. They don't know what's coming to them. Museum is not real. It's false. <laughs> All right. Now, the next, what happens? Verses 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Let me quickly summarize as fast as possible and then move ahead because we have got a very interesting, we're at a very interesting point today. Then the question arises. If all this is so, then what is real? What is the characteristic of real? How do you judge what criterion, what is the, um, what is the um, ground for calling something real then? If everything is unreal, then what, what do you call real? What is the rule? If you want to judge something is real or unreal, um, or what criterion should I apply? Because till now, what were we applying? We are applying a Basically our experience that I see it, hence it's real. It's an object of experience, therefore it's real. But now you are showing that because it's an object of experience, therefore it's unreal. Then what is the characteristic of reality? And in the sixth verse, Gaudapada pointed it out. According to Advaita Vedanta, that which was in the beginning, that, was, that which always was, is and always will be unchanging reality through all our experiences. That is the, the sort of rule of thumb, the characteristic of absolute reality. And only one thing satisfies this, that is the Turiya consciousness. Remember, we are talking about our experiences, our life. 
in throughout waking, dreaming, deep sleep, one thing is there, the bare awareness or consciousness is always there. So, that which was? Huh? I don't understand that about being non-existent. Which one? Turiya being non-existent. Turiya being existent. So it says that which is non-existent at the beginning. Yes, that which is non-existent at the beginning, non-existent oh, at the I end, see. is also non-existent in between. Adhavanteja yad nasti. In the sixth verse he says, that which is not in the beginning, that which is not in the end, therefore that is impermanent. And Gaurapada's conclusion is, therefore it is not in the middle also. Our common sense approach is, yes, it was not there before being born, it was not, it's not there after death, but in the middle it is there. Gaurapada says, in the middle it appears to be there. You can experience it. You can talk with the person. You can make friends friends with that person. You can even marry that person. But doesn't exist. That person doesn't exist. From the point of view of you, the experiencing awareness. Yes. So the life is the middle. Like your, the life you are experiencing yeah. is the middle. In the middle, what you experience is in the middle. That is, but they are appearances. But what is in the beginning, what is in the middle, what is in the end is you, the Turiya. So that one is real. Now immediately, um, some other criterion of reality are offered. The ones which we normally use. Other philosophers come forward to offer criterion of reality. They say, no, 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 this is, this is too much. Real, we can easily determine reality. There are different um, options. In fact, three or four are offered. We, we saw them last time. What are they? One is um, use. Use. Utility. The water which I see is real, because if I drink it, it will satisfy my thirst. The subway which um, uh, is real, because it carried me from my home to 72nd Street. It worked. If it works, it's real. The water in a mirage is not real, because if I go there, it looks like water, but doesn't behave like water. If I drink it, it can't, you can't drink it, it disappears if you try to touch it. So it's not real. But if you touch it, if it feels cold and wet, and if you drink it, if it satisfies your thirst, it's real, it works. So that's the pragmatic argument. What was the answer? Remember, if you listen to it a few times, you will understand Gaurapada's strategy, and even before Gaurapada opens his mouth, you can give the answer. His answer is to use the dream paradigm. In a dream, will um, dream water work? If you're thirsty in a dream, Will the water in the dream work? Will it satisfy your thirst? In thirst in the, in the dream? In the dream it will. It will satisfy your thirst. Yes. And in the dream, if you take the subway to the dream Vedanta society, will it take you there? Yes. It will take you there. And it will be just like the real thing. Except that none of it exists. So, utility argument doesn't work. In the dream also, utility is there. And yet it's false. Then the next person comes, next philosopher comes and says, well, another argument could be um, externality in the sense that what we see out there, many people say, if it's not real, how are we all seeing it here? If I imagine the dream is in my head, but when I see the Central Park out there, that's real because hundreds of people are seeing it. So something out there is real, something I imagine in there is imaginary, false. I see it, but it doesn't exist. I can look at, look at the pen. This pen is real because you are all seeing it. Now you close your eyes and imagine a pen in the head. 
That pen is unreal. You, you don't count it. You don't say there's one pen in Swami's hand and one in my head. No. You say there's only one pen. Why? Because this is the one which everybody else sees. It's out there. And the pen I see in my head is in here. So it's an imagined pen. Imaginary things are unreal. What is out there is real. What would be the answer? Um, give me now. You try. Remember the, the hint is Gaudapada's dream paradigm. Same thing happens in a dream, correct. Same thing happens in a dream. In a dream, aren't there many people? Suppose you're dreaming about walking in the Central Park. Aren't there many people? Yes, there are. Aren't they all seeing the Central Park? Do they say, no, there's no Central Park, it's in your head, you're dreaming it, ha ha. No, they don't say that. They say, yes, we are in Central Park. So in a dream also, and in a dream, can you imagine things in your head? Yes. Yes. In a dream, you could see the pen. And you can imagine a pen in your head and you would say, that's a real pen and what I'm imagining in my head is, is an imaginary pen. And when you wake up, both would be imaginary. Gaurapada says that, yes. So would it be legit to say, um, me as, a, as um, the higher consciousness, uh, I have the chance and the privilege to experience this dream reality we are actually in yes and just accept that and play with the dream reality absolutely knowing that i'm this uh, existence correct that's the whole point mm -hmm. because i know also um, uh, people that went into uh, advaita and are sitting in the real world and being depressed because they're mm. saying it's all false it's all false mm -hmm. but what you're saying i think is very encouraging because i can be aware that i am existence consciousness bliss and going on the subway and enjoying everything and not bashing myself saying this is all false. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. In fact, we're going to come to that. The depressed guy. <laughs> he, he's, he's, he's going to come next. That's where we stopped actually. We stopped at, and without, I mean sort of fortunately, not on purpose, last uh, in summer we stopped at a point. 11th verse and 12th verse are beautiful verses which I'm going to do right now. The 11th verse is this question itself. This very question. This guy feels depressed. He's nothing real. It's all false. So, so what, what's the point of it? Where does it all come from? Who imagines it and for what? That's his question. And you'll see the answer, beautiful answer, 12th verse. I have a question. Uh, the consciousness through which I'm experiencing you is the real thing? Yes. Or the existence which you have borrowed? The existence is... The reality or consciousness is the reality. Is existence the reality or consciousness the reality? And existence, is it real? No. Yes, existence and consciousness are the same thing. It's very interesting. In Advaita Vedanta, existence, consciousness are the same thing. Sat and Chit. It's not an existence devoid of awareness. It's not an awareness, obviously not devoid of con existence. Because without existence, awareness would be, consciousness would be non-existent. It is Sat-Chit, existence consciousness. I can connect with my consciousness like whatever activities I'm doing in my daily life, I can experience... I'm sorry, I'll stop you right there. I can connect with consciousness. <laughs> what is that I? My existence. Is it conscious or not? Is it a conscious... That is the consciousness. The one which is doing the connecting is the consciousness. Yes. Yes. That I can understand, but the existence part, like... How I can experience the existence? Um, Im imagine, say, imagine a flower in your mind right now. Okay, can you see the flower there? Yeah. 
we think there is a flower there and it has its own existence. That's what we think, common sense. Yes. Now imagine that flower in your mind. Yes. If you see, imagine it there. Yes. Are you seeing it? What is the existence? I know it is an imaginary flower, but it exists in some sense, what you are seeing as a thought, as an imagination. Yes. Right? Yes. What is the existence of that thing? What's it made of? That flower which you see now. What's it made of? It's not made of petals and, and because it's, there are no petals it's, there. there no it's, it's just created by my mind. So it's made of your mind? Yes. So it is, it is your mind which sees that flower right now? Yes. And it is made of the mind? Exactly in the same way, what they are saying is this world is seen by consciousness and it is made of consciousness. That's what he's saying. Its existence is consciousness. And it is experienced by consciousness. I'm running ahead of myself because the question will come now. Alright, I will not dwell on the other criterion of um, reality which they were offered. Let's go straight into today's subject because you brought it up. Uh, beautiful. 11th verse and 12th verse. Yes. Uh, verse uh, 2.11 uh, Which book do you have? The same one? Yes um, it is, In my, my, my book it is page two th 236 It's chapter 2 verse 11 Mandukya Upanishad Yeah, man, I have to say Mandukya Upanishad Because uh, there are other Upanishads also in there Do you have it in verse, uh, page 236? Yes. Let me see Page 236? Yes. In, in, it depends on the edition also, of course. 236. In the, your book? Um, yeah, it's in 236. See? Here? I see. Thank you. In an older book, it might be something else. In which book do you have? Yeah, so there it, it would be some other. Uh -huh. It's Nikhilanji's book. So, 110. Yeah, 98, all right. So in, in this book, it is page 236. But, but uh, the best way is to go, go to chapter 2 and verse 11. Yes. Mandukya Upanishad, chapter 2, verse 11. Question, depressed guy. He asked this question. Ubhayorapi vaitatyam Ubhayorapi vaitatyam Bhedanam sthana yoryadi Bhedanam sthana yoryadi Kaetan buddhyate bhedan Kaetan buddhyate bhedan Kovaite sham vikalpakaha Kovaite sham vikalpakaha If everything is unreal, he says, Dreams are also false. Whatever is in the dreams are false. Whatever in the waking is false. Both of everything in this. Not only that, the dreamer is also false. Imagine, not only do you see a scene in your dream, place and people, but you are also a person in the dream. And when you wake up, not only is the scene false, all the people there are false. All that place is what you saw is not, it's not, you really did not go there. But even the person you were in the dream, that was also false. Because really you are sleeping in the bed. So the dream, not only is the dream world false, the dreamer is also false. The waker is also false as well as the waker's world. In such a depressing circumstance, he says, <laughs> if both are false, then what is real? And who is experiencing these things? And who has projected it? 
who has projected this falsity? Because falsity is experience, nobody denies that. You can say dream is false, but you don't deny that you saw the dream. Similarly, if you say waking world is false, but you don't deny that you actually see it, hear it, smell it, taste it, touch it, it's there. Who did this then? If it's not real, if it doesn't exist by itself, if it's projected, who projected it? And who is experiencing it? What's real here? Is everything false? This is the question. It's, it's a, this, is the way, this is where we start. Do you remember the story I told you about uh, the emperor Janaka? Um, who dreamt that he was, he didn't know he was dreaming of course, uh, that there was a great battle in which he lost his king, kingdom or his empire. He was captured and then after undergoing a lot of suffering, he suddenly wakes up and then he thinks that what is true? Was that true or is this true? And the great sage Ashtavakra comes and tells him that, um, O king, O emperor, neither that is true nor this is true. And look at the logic he uses. If you do remember the question he asked, all those things you saw, the horrible things you saw in your nightmare, are they here now? He says, no, then they are false. And all this glory and power and pomp which you have got right now, were they, were they there in your dream? He says, no, then they are false. And he says, neither this is true nor that is true. See, we have some consolation. When we wake up from a dream, we say, ah, that was a nightmare. Thank God this is real. This is real. But Janaka has no such consolation. He's told that that is false, but this is also false. Look at the logic he used. Impermanence. That sage uses that logic. Now both are false. Then what was Janaka's, the emperor's devastated? He was devastated. What was his question? Next. Then if both are false, what is true? What is true? Exactly this question. Same question here. What is true? Remember, when we say false, I'll repeat this again, in Vedanta, the word in Sanskrit is mithya, false. But this is also, this does not mean nothing exists. It means the reality is appearing in this form. In the dream, it does, when you say the dream is false, it doesn't mean nothing exists. The dreamer is there. The dreamer is, dreamer's mind alone is appearing in all those forms. Right? In the dream example. Here also there is some reality which is appearing in these forms. So other terms which are used for false. You see what is meant, before we go into the answer, what is meant by false in Vedanta must be carefully understood. False means, you can call it a relative reality. Uh, part of that, but also because it doesn't see uh, the reality. The person does not see the reality. If you just consider the falsity of things, then it's horrifying. Then it's meaningless. It's like a bottomless pit. Then you are confronted with the existential question. You know, Camus, the only serious philosophical question is why should we not commit suicide? So, uh, then you could, depression is almost inevitable then. Why should, a sensitive soul will think, why should I live? Because suppose you live in a world of dreams all the time. Or suppose you live in a world of movies all the time. And then somebody points it out to you, all of this is virtual, none of it is real. 
you will get tired of it at one point. No matter how nice it seems, you will want to know what's real. If you're living in the matrix and it's pointed out to you that you're the matrix, it's this the matrix. So we are constitutionally, we are what are called reality oriented. We behave in terms of what we consider to be real. What we consider to be real has a dominant effect on us. Usually we take the appearance as reality and that's it. What do I mean by that is, in dreams we behave as if what we are seeing is real. So it scares us, delights us, bores us, whatever happens. But none of it is real actually in the dream. It's an appearance of our minds. Consider a delusional person, a schizophrenic person. Thinks that the world is persecuting him or is out to get him. And we know everything is alright. There's no problem at all. But that person responds and behaves and feels and thinks according to what he or she believes to be real. So we are, what I am saying, reality oriented. As long as we consider this to be reality, our behavior is dominated by this, this reality orientation. Are you with me? Yes. What Advaita is going to do is profoundly unsettling. It changes your dominant view of reality. Right here, in this experience, it will shift what you consider to be real about yourself and the world. It's going to do that. Yeah. But until you discover what is real, if everything is said to be false to you, immediately you'll feel depressed. It's natural. A related thing is, you know the uh, Sartre's book, Nausea? Where the protagonist, he sits in a park and he looks at the tree which is just so and the bench and everything. And his whole thing is, a reaction is of nausea. That this thing... He cannot take it as totally real. He does not see any greater transcendent reality beyond it. And this thing should be the only reality of the world. This is, he, uh, he, it brings out an awful disappointment in him. That's the name of the book, Nausea. Alright. So, relative reality. Now what I'm saying is, a relative reality. Vedanta accepts that this world, remember, it's a fiction according to Vedanta, but a convenient fiction. For example, is this the afternoon now? And say, yes. Truly? Not truly. It's for five o'clock. Is it really five o'clock? Yes. No. If you take a fast jet and fly out to Chicago, it will be four o'clock. And if you fly out uh, two more hours, and, uh, 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 or no, if, 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 you call, if you call Chicago, now it's four o'clock. If you travel to Chicago in an hour, it will be still be five o'clock after one hour. If you fly two more hours to LA, uh, it will still be five o'clock. In LA. If you call Chicago right now, they'll say, no, it's not five, it's four. If you call LA right now, they'll say, no, it's not five, it's two o'clock. Then what o'clock is it now? <laughs> it's not really five o'clock, but five o'clock is a convenient fiction. It is relatively true. It's not totally false. It's relatively true and it is useful. We take it as real and we behave as if it is real. Now, Mithya, the word, the word Mithya in Advaita Vedanta goes by those terms also. You can say that relative reality, convenient fiction, useful fiction. Um, in Sanskrit it is called Vyavaharika. 
transactional reality. So, huh? Yes, in, the, in common circumstances, we think it is real. But Vedanta says it's not fundamentally real. Fundamentally real is consciousness in which these things are experienced. But their transactional reality, their relative reality, the convenient fiction is not lost even after you realize what the truth is. Even now you realize that 5 o'clock now is a, is a convenient fiction. But that doesn't mean that you will give up using it. If someone asks you the time, Will you say, uh, what's the time please, will you say, depends. <laughs> you used to know before you went to the Vedanta class. Now, now you're saying it depends. Truly it depends. But you know that here in Manhattan the time is 5 o'clock. And that's a convenient, that is a relative truth. Sim Vyavaharika. Yes. Nama, Rupa, Vyavaharika is same. Vyavaharika means trans. Vyavahara is transaction. Use. Use. Convenient fiction. Why I'm saying this is, even after all this is said and done, you make a non-dualistic breakthrough and you get it. Oh, this is what it is. Still, the convenient fiction that is Manhattan and the subway and the grocery and, and, and uh, um, Costco will still be cheap cheaper. And uh, It's all convenient fiction. And it will function the way it has always been functioning. But you see through the whole facade and it's all good. Yeah. So now we will see the answer. That's why I just wanted to mention it. Because the moment you say world is false, people immediately think that Advaitins is saying it doesn't exist. No, it exists in a certain sense, in a relative sense. Somebody said these are polite ways of saying false, relative reality. It's a polite name for falsity. Convenient, uh, it, it is a, a transactional reality, a, con a polite way of saying false. It will hurt your feelings if you say it's false. So transactional reality, oh okay, reality. <laughs> Swami Vivekananda said, Swami Vivekananda said, we move from lower truth to higher truth. Lower truth, another polite way of saying false. <laughs> but there is some, some um, I mean, that should be kept in mind. Yes, it's a lower truth. Yes, it's a convenient fiction. Yes, it's useful. Yes, it's a relative reality. But it's not absolutely real. The problem is we take this to be real. So this is what Advaita is doing. It's shifting. The ground is beginning to shift under our feet. So what is the answer? What is real? Everything is false. Is this the, this is the question? And the answer to that is a beautiful verse. I'm glad we, st we are starting our uh, fall session with this verse. It basically sums up the entirety of uh, Advaita Vedanta, what Advaita is trying to say. And it speaks to what you are just asking, what you are just asking. It's a direct answer to your question. How are we to re uh, look upon this world? Verse number 12. Kalpayatyatmanatmanam Kalpayatyatmanatmanam Atma Deva Swamayaya Atma Deva Swamayaya Saeva Buddhyate Bhedan Saeva Buddhyate Bhedan Iti Vedanta Nishayaha Iti Vedanta Nishayaha this self-effulgent consciousness, it projects itself by itself through its own power of maya. This 
self shining lord itself experiences itself as all the objects of the universe this conclusion is reached through vedanta now what does it mean it's a glorious verse it's the it's a song of unity it's a song of oneness there is one reality which pervades this entire universe you have never experienced anything except the the transcendental spirit itself you have never as vivekananda said never approach anything except as god because every bit of it is god the very thing the very statement that this is false also equally means this is nothing other than god it's false as a ta- chair and a table it's true as god that's what it means you are, all the time we live in god have our being in god we move in god it's the song of unity uh, eternally one reality shining forth in all these ways and that one reality is you yourself so that's the meaning of the verse let's see and oh, let's see how it goes one thing before we start just as an aside look at the last word iti vedanta nischaya this is the conclusion of vedanta now one standing controversy with uh, among philosophers has been the buddhist roots of the mandukya karika how much whether it's at all some people they even go so far as to say is it a vedantic text or is it a buddhistic text because it sounds so buddhistic at times well this verse look at the word godapada himself uses the word this is the conclusion of vedanta all you have to do is read this it's a no brainer is this vedantic look at verse number 12 this is vedanta how much more <laughs> direct can you get so that's just um, this is a marker it it points to what godapada is talking about that it is a vedantic truth all right now let's take it up one by one kalpayatya atmanatmano first of all atma devah the self you the real you this one is described as devah devah here means literally in sanskrit devah means god but here it means consciousness literally the word if you go to the sanskrit dictionary there are 10 meanings now one of those meanings is duty shining that which shines that which glows it's consciousness you're talking about i the consciousness atmana atmanam it's talking about you shining forth that that base consciousness that that bare consciousness pure consciousness shining forth as the waker experiencing a waking world every bit of that waking world and the waker are none other than this fundamental consciousness which you are which i am it's the dreamer that consciousness alone appears through the mind projects a dream world and appears as the dreamer also a dreamer experiencing a dream world at its ground it's nothing other than that pure consciousness the fourth the turiya which you are which i am and in deep sleep the projection is switched off a blankness envelops our experience it is that same base consciousness which now appears as the sleeper experiencing a blankness a darkness all throughout the waker and the, and the waker's world in themselves are not real any more real than the pot is real apart from the clay or the waves are real apart from water similarly you the waker and your world 
is, no, is not real apart from you, the pure consciousness. That one awareness, that alone appears as all of this. Similarly, in dream world, that consciousness alone appears as you, the dreamer, and the entire dream world. And that alone appears as the blankness of deep sleep. These three come and go. They are false in themselves. In reality, they are nothing other than this transcendent consciousness. And this transcendent consciousness is you, is your, your real nature. Your real nature is not this waker, not this body, not even this personality. It is this one underlying consciousness. And remember, the beauty of Advaita is, it's not a speculation. It's not like, as you see, now I'm trying to contact my consciousness. No, 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 no. It's continuously available to you. We think, we, I can experience a world. I can experience myself. But what about this? Myself means this body. I can even introspect and watch my thoughts. But what about this pure consciousness? This seems to be theoretical. This seems to be... It's not theoretical. It's the only thing that you are experiencing. The, the one which is experiencing itself as waker and waker's world is this one. Right now, if you say, I can experience the, this world. This is real. I can experience this. What is experiencing? This world is the object of experience. But what in what are you experiencing it? In consciousness. So the beauty of Advaita is, this transcendent consciousness is continuously available, right now. And Vedanta wants to point it out to, to you. Um, there was a monk in the Himalayas who would read, the, he was regarded as a, an enlightened soul, who would read the text Panchadashi. When I heard this story, I was so happy. Panchadashi, which we studied last year. He would sit and read, read this text Panchadashi and somebody asked him, Swami, you are an enlightened person. That means you know the reality. Why do you have to read a book? Why do you have to read a book? Why are you reading a book? What can it tell you? You already know it. You have realized it. And he said, in Hindi, he said that, that to the person who asking, was asking, I am just seeing the book to see what good things it says about me. <laughs> what a beautiful thing to say. It's speaking about Brahman. It's speaking about the transcendent reality. And he's saying, I am just seeing it to say what nice things it says about me. Uh, it says about me that uh, you are the one witness, you are the un unchanging consciousness, that you are, uh, you are not born, you do not die, the universe rotates upon you, it arises in you, it shines in you, it disappears into you. Ah, all nice things it says. Who wouldn't want to know these nice things? It's such a great pointer to us. We say, okay, it says wonderful things, good for Turiya, but I am miserable. <laughs> Or we might even, when it's the Turiya is your inner consciousness. Yeah, my inner consciousness is fine, but it's the problem with the outer consciousness is the problem. <laughs> no. Also, as a teacher, yes. Like as a, as, as a higher consciousness, being a teacher in this um, uh, reality, how yes. do you call it? Um, Tran this transactional reality? Yes. Oh. Um, wouldn't it be helpful to read? How I can um, explain this transcendence? Of course, so Def definitely. That's the point. But uh, no, but no. The, I mean, that's of course there. That's why teachers always use these texts. They're used to transmit this knowledge. But the point here was that we are talking about you. When it says Atma Deva, the self is this pure consciousness. The self, which is pure consciousness. I'm taking up these two words, Atma Deva. Atma means 
again when sanskrit word atma in, in especially uh, if you're innocent of sanskrit you're safe if you know sanskrit you will think that oh it's some kind of philosophical thing you know my atma is fine your atma is means you atma means the self i me myself atma is not like my kidney or my lung you know that's my that's fine but i am in trouble no you are the atma and this atma is nothing other than pure consciousness that's why the teacher was saying this book talks about the atma it talks about pure consciousness that's how you all study it yes how are you studying it i'm studying it it's talking about me it's talking about me that is enlightenment he has shifted his entire frame of reference you see what does advaita do very simply when you say i the i means something i is a word right what does it mean pen is a word it means this thing this is the thing the object and the word is pen now i is a word what does it mean depending on your yes normally it refers to the body mind right i no moment i say instinctively i say i this Swami Vivekananda said, close your eyes and think, I, if any thought of body or mind arises, you are not enlightened yet. The I refers to awareness, consciousness. Which consciousness? This consciousness. consciousness. Consciousness is always existence consciousness. Think about non-existent consciousness. You cannot. It's this consciousness. We don't complicate it. Don't philosophize it too much. It's continuously aware to, uh, available to you. Yeah, I see the world, I see the body, I even experience the mind. Where is this consciousness? It's like seeing, I see the pot, where is the clay? All you are seeing is the clay. Every bit of it. What you touch is the clay, what you weigh is the clay. What you, in fact, the pot is constituted through and through by clay. In fact, there is no pot apart from clay. In fact, there is no such thing called a pot. The thing is clay. Similarly, every bit here is nothing apart from consciousness. Whatever you experience. By, by here, I mean your experience, your life. If you actually begin to understand what they are saying, you will say, it is basically telling us um, absolutely, you know, a simple matter of fact point. That uh, what else could it be? My life is basically consciousness. In my awareness alone, my entire life is experienced. What else could it be ab uh, apart from consciousness? Every bit of that we experience is this consciousness. Now the question was, what is all this? Who projected it? And who experiences it? And the answer is, Kalpayati. It is projected, imagined. Atmana, Atmanam. By this self, the self is projected by the self. Remember, in Vedanta, we talk about material cause and uh, efficient cause. So, when you say, when we say, for example, in religious language and theology, God created the universe. Who created the universe? God created the universe. So, it's like, say, a potter creating a pot, for example. So the potter is the efficient cause, the intelligent cause, the one who did it. And the clay is the material cause, the one the thing which was shaped into a pot. 
So the material is clay um, and uh, the creator, the intelligent cause or efficient cause is the potter and the two together create an object called the pot. Similarly, God is the creator, so God is the efficient cause and there is some material which God shapes into this universe. That is a sort of a, a crude religious idea. Now what Vedanta says is, the efficient cause and the material cause are one and the same. Brahman is both the efficient cause and the material cause and that efficient cause and material cause is none other than this consciousness which you are. So it says that consciousness self projects itself by itself. By itself means it's the it is the efficient cause. Projects itself means it is the material cause. In the technical term in Sanskrit, abhinna nimitta upadana karana. The uh, one undivided material and efficient cause of the universe. You see why this is said is because there were other dualistic philosophers in India. They had different theories about creation. So for example the Nyaya, the logician, the Nyaya school of uh, philosophy in India. Their idea was God is an all-powerful being. A conscious all-powerful being and the material of the universe they actually they were the first atomists they talked about uh, Anu atoms so there is space space exists eternally and free floating atoms in space exist it's, it's not the Vedanta view it's the view of um, the Nyaya free floating atoms exist in space and there is God an omnipotent omniscient uh, omnipresent conscious being and what does God do? Because of the will of God, these free-floating atoms in space come together into planets and stars and not very, it's a pretty sophisticated model actually. So God here is, is the intelligent cause like the, like the potter. And the atoms and space and all of that, the rest of it is like the clay which is shaped into a mud. So God is the intelligent cause and the atoms and space, they are the uh, material cause, or efficient cause and material cause. They are not the same thing. But Vedanta doesn't agree. Vedanta says there is only one indivisible material and uh, efficient cause. Why? For example, think what, what would result if such, if what the Nayaikas say or what most religion also says. Suppose there is a creator God and there is a material out of which God creates the universe. Immediately you have made a fatal error. The error is this then there is something which is not God, apart from God. You say, yes, so, then in that case your God is not infinite. Infinite means without limit. Then God is limited. God ends where the material of the universe begins. So you have two things now. You've got God and a separate thing called the universe. It's a limited God. And then the rest of the logic is very simple. A limited God is also subject to change, is subject to limitation, change, decay and death. So your God is dead. Nietzsche. Nietzsche, yeah. So, so Swamiji, yes. they don't believe that is the uh, philosophy doesn't hear it rather, doesn't yeah. believe that uh, this entity God mm. permeates the atoms in space. It does, but it is not the atoms in space. Because it is infinite. So in one sense, for example, the light, for the example they'll give, they give the incense, like incense permeates a room, but the incense, incense, incense is not the temple, incense permeates the temple, pervades the temple. Switch on the light, the light permeates the room, but the light is not the room, 
Similarly, God is an awareness which permeates the entire universe. So it's omniscient, it knows everything and all of that. But it is not the material universe. Material universe is something separate from God. Right? That's the Nyaya view. Hmm. The way commonly and these Nyaya philosophers are actually the modern bhaktas. <coughs> so, uh-huh. I mean, there doesn't one believe that, you know, God really permeates... I just said that. I just said that. I'm not God. You're not God, yeah. but, but uh, God exists in you. Right? That's exactly what the Nyayakas are saying. The Nyaya philosophy is saying that. The, for example, right now, the light permeates the room. So the light is falling on you also, but you are not the light. The light illumines you, but you are not the light. Similarly, just use that example. God is an all-pervading awareness, consciousness. God knows everything. But everything is not God. They are all separate from God. It's a dualistic approach. So they have their own logic. But Advaita says, no, there is only one reality. Same logic you can use for cutting down the Nyaya. If consciousness permeates the universe, but is apart from the universe, how would you prove the existence of that apart universe, apart from consciousness? There would be no proof of it. Because whatever universe exists has to be experienced in consciousness only. All right. So, so, so th- yes. Just follow up a little yes. bit on that. You know, to me, it's a bit of hubris to think at this stage, uh, I am this reality. I mean, as I said, intellectually, I can understand it. It makes perfect sense. Yes. I still am after, you know, these two years, I still have this conflict within me. I just cannot get myself to think that, yes, it is the real self. And, And again, I look at it, of course, the problem is I look at it from the relative reality. Yes. It's difficult for me to do away with that. Don't do away with it. Recognize the relative reality as relative reality. You cannot do away with it. So, as Turiya, we are all one reality. But as, say, as Rekha, Rekha exists, your Rekha exists in that uh, one reality as this person Rekha. So, to Rekha, that reality will be God. The God of religion appears to me as this, and I am this individual being who was born in such and such time, has changed in such and such ways, and will ultimately I will die at some point. To me, that ultimate reality is God at this point. But underlying this point, that God and I are the same, uh, that ground of reality, that, that one consciousness. This is what Advaita wants to tell you. Just as coming back to relative reality, After knowing all of this also, you feel hungry, eat food, it will satisfy your hunger. If you pray to God, um, you can still have that loving devotional relationship with God. Bhakti is enabled, justified by jnana, not cut down by jnana. By knowledge... Elaborate on that, because Ah. that is my problem. Right. Knowledge gives you the foundation for bhakti. Otherwise, without this, what we are talking about, how do you even know that God you are talking about exists? Where is the existence? It's entirely faith dependent. I believe in it. Okay. But suppose someone questions you and attacks that belief, there is no answer to that. But 
doesn't Sri Thakur say that faith yeah. is very important? It is true. It is true. Pillars. If you have faith, well and good. But if you take it the Advaita point of view, Advaita gives you a grounding to that faith. How do you justify that faith? Where is the reality? I, I find that Advaita, properly understood, maturely understood, only grounds my faith. It makes it real. Otherwise, it could be shaken. The belief is in Vedanta. You believe in Vedanta. Yes, but remember, belief in Vedanta, what is this belief in Vedanta? Look at the, where the verse ended. This is the conclusion of Vedanta. How do you know all this? Where, where this I am that transcendent consciousness which is appearing as this universe. Apart from this uni- me, this universe is an appearance. It has no intrinsic reality. So how can we, this is wonderful, how can we realize all this? You can realize it through Vedanta. You have to come to class. When it happens on Wednesdays at 4, 4 p.m. But now you see that we, then you have to believe in Vedanta at least. We have to be careful. What do you mean believe in Vedanta? Do you, you study physics? Do you believe in physics or do you know and understand physics? Know and understand physics. The subway. Do you know that it exists and runs at such and such time or do you believe that it does? You know. (laughs) You know that it, it is there. So there is a difference between our knowledge and our belief. There are certain things I can say. For example, heaven exists and God exists. Do you know it for a fact? No, I believe it. Correct. The subway exists. Do you know it for a fact? Will you say, no, I believe it. But I'm not, I don't know it for a fact that it exists. No, you will say, I know it exists. In which category does physics lie? Does engineering lie? Do you believe something about it or do you know it? What's important? When you, when you go to math class or physics class in, the, in Columbia University, and the pro- professor teaches you, and will you say, well, I, I, I believe what you are saying, sir. You are great. And uh, you, uh, whatever you say is golden for me. And I believe it. You are a great guy. You do this. <laughs> the professor is going to be profoundly unhappy with you. Professor will say, no, no, don't believe me. Look at what I'm saying. Look at the textbooks. Think for yourself. If you are um, still skeptical, go out and perform the experiments. And know it for a fact. Understand it. What is Vedanta? This is the glory of Vedanta. Vedanta lies in this category of physics or knowing that the subway exists. Tell me something right now. Start with the body. Look at your own body. Is it a fact or is it something that you believe? Is it something that you are experiencing or is it something that you believe? You are experiencing it, right? Now breathe in and out. We are going from gross to subtle. Breathe in and out. That experience was it an experience of breathing in and out or did you say I believe that I breathed in and out it's an experience and the thought that I'm listening to the Swami's words I understand the Swami's words we are doing Vedanta these thoughts are going through your mind these thoughts do they exist or do you believe they exist they exist and the awareness to which the thoughts are coming that awareness, does it exist or do you believe it exists? It exists. Without it, you would not experience your thoughts, you would not experience your breath, you would not experience the body. And without these, you would not experience the world. 
that awareness exists. We know this, that we are conscious beings. Everybody knows this. You don't know that we believe we are conscious beings. If you say, I believe I am conscious, <laughs> it is the very consciousness which is saying that. Even the belief and disbelief, Shankaracharya says, he who disbelieves in the Atman, it is the Atman of the disbeliever. Uh, because that consciousness by which you express a disbelief in all of this, it is that consciousness we are talking about. The one who, one who dismisses this one, it is the very self, the very consciousness of the one which enables him to dismiss this. That's what we are talking about. Now, even so far, it's actually not very interesting. What's interesting is coming here. This is the one which is interesting. That I am conscious, we all know. You don't require Vedanta to say that. It's a, it may need to be pointed out, but we know it. In the moment it's pointed out, we all acknowledge, yeah, I am conscious. But that does not solve our problems. What is our problem? The problem is not that I, I did not know I was conscious. I know I am conscious. But that this consciousness is a very limited consciousness. This consciousness is tied up with a particular mind and body which is a limited existence in a vast and pitiless universe when I am born and very soon my existence will be crushed out where this consciousness is impacted by depression and misery and suffering and a little lack of food, a little lack of air, a, a, a virus can immediately have devastating effects on this consciousness. This is my problem. True or not? <coughs> Vedanta philosophically puts it, this is a very limited consciousness is the problem. And this is what Vedanta actually attacks. He says, no, this consciousness is not limited. No, I'm born and what, what are the limitations? I'm subject to birth and death. Really? What is subject to, what, what was born? What is the, what is the evidence for the birth, uh, your birth. Even body is born, everybody knows. It's recorded in hospital records. And the body dies, everybody knows. You see, when you say death is the end, there is a, there's a trick involved, a switch there. Many people don't know. It took me a long time to notice. After reading Vedanta, you notice this. You know what is the switch? As long as I exist, as I'm here, when I talk about myself, what am I talking about? I am talking about this person in this body, this thinking, talking, feeling, this person, Sarvapriyananda. And when death comes and the doctor says, that's it, Sarvapriyananda is dead, he made a switch. He noticed the body dying, did he notice this inner person dying? He can no longer contact this inner person because the body is dead. So it's automatically assumed that the inner person is also gone. It's a subtle point, but a very important point. Nobody, nobody ever has seen the death of anybody. Nobody. The doctor, how does the doctor contact me? The doctor does not directly observe the inner person which I am. Can the doctor observe my thoughts, my feelings, my memories, desires, personality? Nothing. It's only when I talk and I behave in certain ways, the doctor infers that there is a person inside this body. The doctor can observe this body living, being born, living and dying. And immediately, the death of the body is substituted for death, death of the person. So it's a problem of proof within the relative reality? 
um, because the communication of the Atman isn't possible directly without the body. Uh, uh, what, what I'm saying here is, when you say the consciousness is limited, for example, limited by death. So as an aside, I mentioned this. A simple fact of life, even without Vedanta, is that nobody really has ever seen anybody dying, anybody, any person dying. Dispute it. Okay, that's a different question. But I'm asking a very, very specific question. Has any doctor ever seen the inner person dying? A doctor? By the by the by the inner person, I mean. Remember some. Not only pure consciousness. I mean this person you are right now. I mean you, right now. I'm not talking about a theoretical inner person. I'm talking about what is most real to you and me, our, we ourselves. What is most real to you? Is the brain most real to you? We've never seen our own brains. What we have, ex what we have always experienced are our own thoughts and feelings, our emotions, our conscious pain and pleasure and all of that we experienced. Yes, we have also experienced this body all the time. Now, this consciousness is not limited. That's what Advaita Vedanta wants to say. It is not born, it will not die. No, it is subject to starvation and suffering. Even the suffering of the body is an object to this consciousness. I'll make a dramatic statement. When a person is starving and hungry, say, I'm in pain. There is pain. I say, oh, then the consciousness is in pain. Wait, just a minute. You are aware of the pain, right? Then the pain is an object, just like this pen is an object. Is the consciousness in pain or is the consciousness aware of pain? Aware, aware. aware of pain. You'll say, like there is a difference. There is. If you try it, you'll see psychologically, logically they are not the same thing. And psychologically, once you realize the logic of it, when you look at it psychologically, there will be a big difference. A gap opens up inside you in, uh, psychologically between you and your pain. It becomes an object. The pain, practically, amazingly, the pain diminishes. A doctor said 80% of our pain is chronic pain. Acute pain is very sharp. But chronic pain, 80% of the discomfort from chron uh, chronic pain is, is psychological. Emotional pain is experienced in the reflective consciousness? Is experienced in the mind. Yes. And experienced through the reflected consciousness or by the reflected consciousness in the mind. Ask yourself, where, where do you feel pain? If you feel pain, emotional pain, where is an emotion? In the mind. In the mind. Yes. Just yesterday we were talking about it in the class, right? Yeah. So certain yogis, they become extraordinarily sensitive. And um, certain yogis. And they can extend their awareness and feel what's going on in the nervous systems of other beings around themselves. Remember, Thakur, he may have extended his awareness to that grass there. And that, remember at that time he was teaching somebody. Avedananda, in fact. He says, go and tell him not to step on the grass. Yesterday we talked about it. 
No, not yesterday, Sunday. Sunday, we talked about it on Sunday. But did Thakur say he was feeling exactly what every insect, man, woman, child and um, whales and elephants and bacteria were feeling throughout the universe at that time? No. Uh, anyway, so the consciousness, in one consciousness, these things come and go, they are objects. The consciousness, because of consciousness, you have the experience of pain. Consciousness is not in pain. Consciousness is not born and not, not does it die. Consciousness does not age. Consciousness in itself does not suffer. When you see yourself in this way, Atma Deva, you the self are this shining being of consciousness. Then the whole of life, this is the answer to your question. Everything is your projection, your play. Every bit of it is you. The universe is one with you. It's a delight. Sri Ramakrishna sh shows this shift. Hold on to your question, I'll come to you. Sh uh, Sri Ramakrishna shows this shift. He says, people say that this is a house of deceit. I say this is a mansion of delight. Majar Kuti, he says. This is a mansion of delight. How is it a mansion of delight? It's I alone playing in all of these ways. Even my own suffering then becomes a form of play, a delight. And you identify deeply, deeply with others. You, your heart expands like nothing. You know, like, like nothing else makes it so expansive and all-inclusive. You are one with others. Just as I address my own ills and sufferings, in that case, everybody's ills and sufferings will be mine. And yet, because I know my transcendent nature, I know that I am not affected by it, ultimately. It's, it's in that one consciousness, everything is happening. Um, you had a question. Swamiji, you say that consciousness is one and bodies are many. Yes. What's the logic here? Think about it. Let me ask you, why would you think consciousnesses are many? There's only one consciousness yes, that, yes. that pr pr pervades all bodies. Yes. So the bodies are many. Bodies are many. Consciousness is one. What's, the What's the logic behind it? I'm asking you, why would you say that there are many consciousnesses? See, for example, I'm, I'll, I'll make it... No, you have to say something. Why, why would you say I don't know? Then you don't ask the question. No, no I'm, I'll, I'll guide you to it. But you have to give me the answer. Um, are there many bodies? Why do you say that? You can see them. Are there many minds? Yes. Why do you say that? They manifest. They manifest. The knowledge that is in, my, uh, in your mind is not in my mind. The experiences that she has, you have not had. So memories, <coughs> knowledge, ideas, creativity, they all differ. Manifest it. That's where we say the minds are different. Bodies are different, we see it. Minds are different, we see it. Awareness as witness of different bodies and minds. You just felt it, there's an awareness. Yeah. That awareness is different in each being. Why would you say that? Because? I, I can talk about my awareness, uh -huh. but I can't talk about other people's awareness. Yeah, so why would you say it's different? Does it, can you see it? No, I can't. You can't. Does it manifest itself? Yes. Where? They, they react to the... Uh -huh, uh -huh. The reaction is, isn't, isn't it the mind? Right. They are minds. So you have already disposed of that question. Minds are different, you have agreed. Yeah. 
We have a, I also agree, minds are different. The consciousness itself, does it manifest itself separately? Again, I'm asking, I'm asking a question, why would you say bodies are different? You said, I see that they're different. Why would you say minds are different? You see, their minds are manifested in their behavior and thoughts and, exped and their behavior. So minds are different, I agree. Bodies are different, I agree. We all agree on that. Why would you say awareness is different? Because I don't know the other awareness. Because? I don't know the other people's awareness. I know what my awareness Yes. I don't know what other people's awareness is. But suppose the awareness is there. There is awareness. Yes. But what they are aware of, I'm not aware of. Ah, they are aware in each body and mind, the contents of that particular mind are, they are aware of. Right? So the contents are different from people to people. Clearly, if light falls upon different buckets, the, it will reveal different uh, contents in different buckets. But is the light itself different? Uh, yeah, uh, now Advaita Vedanta says it is same. It is one consciousness. Remember, it's not a very easy topic because... There are many philosophies which say exactly this, the consciousnesses in each body are different. Sankhya says this, yoga philosophy, Sankhya philosophy, we are all different consciousnesses. That it is one indivisible consciousness, Advaita says this. You ask, the, what he is asking is, is absolutely right, it's a, it's a valid question. Why would you say it's one consciousness? I am asking a counter question, why would you say it's different? I'm, no, to say there are two things, you must have some justification. You'll say, no, it seems to be different. If you now take into account that it's the body which is clearly different, it's the mind which is different, apart from the body-mind of that person, apart from your body-mind, imagine your awareness. Just like a mind game, imagine the awareness apart from body-mind, with no response, no... no, uh, no um, uh, without any um, reference to physical uh, man, woman, old, young, nothing. Happy, sad, knowledgeable, um, ignorant, nothing. Just the bare awareness. Would it be different in anybody's case? Alright, you still don't seem convinced. Alright, let me ask you. Your waking experiences are different from his or her waking experiences? Yeah. Correct? Has to be, because your point of view is different. Your dreams are different from his or her dreams. Your deep sleep is different from his or her deep sleep. No, it should not be, but it could be. Deep sleep. Could be. How? If you understand what deep sleep is, an absolute absence of any objective experience. If there is an absence of objective experience, how would you differentiate one absence of objective experience from another absence of objective experience? You cannot. Would somebody's unconsciousness be different from another person's unconsciousness? No. Difference means, these are very easy to point out in Sanskrit, vishesha in Sanskrit. A differentiating factor is necessary for difference. And deep sleep is simply the erasure or the covering up. Let's not say erasure because it comes back again. But deep sleep is basically the covering up, the hiding of all differentiating factors. The experience of deep sleep is exactly the same for you and for me, Upanishad says, for a mosquito and for an elephant. <coughs> yeah. 
if deep sleep itself is the, exactly the same for everybody, the consciousness which experiences that deep sleep, how much more it would be same for everybody? At the level of deep sleep itself, differences are erased, temporarily. That which looks upon these differences and the erasure of these differences, that one is common for everybody. Why we think it will be different is because we see different bodies, so there must be difference there. That's what we think. We think that, no, I am aware of this and he is not aware of that, so the consciousness... But this, I am aware of this, is the, it's this awareness is in the mind. Consciousness is revealing contents of this mind to itself, to the, con to the mind itself. Each mind is aware of its own contents. And if you are a telepath, you'll be aware of the contents of a few other people's minds also. But the awareness is the one which shines upon the mind. See, these questions come when, will, they will go away when we are able to clearly differentiate between mind and consciousness. Yes. So that, is that is different. From yes, yes. Reflected consciousness is different for each mind because reflected. Imagine, sun is shining. There are many buckets of water. In each bucket of water, will there be a little reflected sun, a tiny sun? And will there be many or one? one? How many reflected suns will be there in the buckets of water? How many? As many buckets of water, so many little reflected suns. As many dew drops in the park, there are so many little reflected suns. So there are many, but the sun itself is one. Swami, yes. could an answer to this gentleman's question be that, uh, you know, since everything appears in my consciousness, hmm. that's the reason why it is, you know, one unified consciousness. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is the Advaitic answer. I was uh, going along in the train of your questioning. You know what is the train of your question? These are two diametrically opposite appro approaches. The first is, this is the place to start, the way you started. Well, the way we start is, here is the world, here is the body, in this body is a mind, in that mind is awareness. That's what we are doing. World, body, hmm? then we did breath, then we did mind, and that mind we are aware of it. So it's something subtler inside, Taittiriya Upanishad approach. Annamaya kosha, pranamaya kosha, manomaya kosha, vijnanamaya kosha, anandamaya kosha, and finally the witness consciousness of all of these. But it gives an illusion that there are, there is this whole vast reality, and there is a flickering little light inside which is called consciousness. But so this is one thing. But the Advaitic approach, what she just pointed out. Suppose you take that approach, then the answer is straight and direct for you. When you look at this world, this world that you are seeing appears in your consciousness, right? Now, if you are asking, are there different consciousnesses? Are all of them part of this world or not, what you are experiencing? And they are all appearing in your consciousness. In the dream, when you say so many people are there, and you think each one has a separate mind and a separate consciousness, when you wake up, what will happen? All those bodies, minds and consciousnesses are nothing apart from you, the dreamer. The dreamer's mind alone generated all those people's bodies, minds and consciousness, whatever it is, including the you in the dream itself. That was also generated by the mind. All of it is nothing but the dreamer's mind. Exactly like that, Advaita says, there is this one unified field of consciousness, using your words, that one awareness in which everything is being experienced. 
It's not that awareness, it's not that there is a body in that, there is a mind in that, there is consciousness. Rather, there is awareness or consciousness in which everything is experienced. That is the Advaitic answer. That is actually the Advaitic answer. That's what is being said here just now in this verse. It, this verse says, Kalpayati Atmana Atmanam. Uh, I'll come to hold on to your question. This, this shining consciousness, Atma Deva, this shining consciousness, it imagines or projects. By what material? By itself. The only material is this, this consciousness itself, this existence consciousness. And who does it? Atmana, by itself it is done. But how can pure consciousness imagine a world? Where does the material for the world come? Where does all these ideas, thoughts, feelings, differences, they don't seem to be a part of existence consciousness bliss. Where does it all, where is all this differentiated world generated? Do you understand the question? If there is pure consciousness, it should remain as pure consciousness, existence consciousness. Where would it get the resources to imagine a world? Then the verse says, Swamayaya, by its maya, by its unthinkable power of maya, it has a potential to project all of this and lend them existence and give them a kind of temporary relative existence also in which you can work in a, in a uh, waking world, in a dream world. But underlying all of this is this one consciousness which you are. Swamayaya. Just as a, uh, just to keep the philosophy clear, this Atma Deva, this pure consciousness with Maya is called Saguna Brahman in, in Vedanta, Ishwara. Ishwara with Maya, this consciousness alone with Maya is Ishwara. And Ishwara is the projector of the world. So this is where religion and Advaita meet. Religion worships this Ishwara. What is Ishwara? This consciousness plus Maya, which is the projector of the entire universe. It's the lord of the universe, it is the controller, it is all present, omniscient, omnipotent, all of this. Whatever you consider, it is called Vishnu or Shiva or Jehovah or Allah, whatever it is called. It is the God worshipped in religion. With respect to it, we become tiny individuals. But the reality is, your reality is this one consciousness. Apart from this, there is no Jiva, there is no Ishwara. I'll repeat this line. Apart from this one consciousness, there is no Jiva, no Ishwara. You alone are Jiva right now. You alone are Ishwara, the word Ishwara you are worshipping. You say, my devotion to God, I cannot, I cannot have the hubris of imagining that I am God. That was your language. Now it is true. The jiva, do you understand what I mean by jiva? Us, right now, what we think about ourselves. If I think I am God, that's what the dualists attack the non-dualists for in India. He said, this is sacrilege. Uh, you arrogant fools. Uh, you, you cannot survive even a moment without the, by the, without the grace of God, without the grace of Ishwara, who provides you with you know, water and air and food and even gravity would fly off immediately. All of this is given to you by God and you have the arrogance to claim that you are God. But this is a fundamental misunderstanding of Advaita. Advaita never says that the individual being is God. Advaita never says that the wave is the ocean. Advaita says there is something called water without which neither ocean nor wave exists. Okay? And you are the water. You are not the wave. Uh, 
Atma is both Ishwara and Jiva. When it is Jiva, it is called Jivatma. Atma is this one. Just now we said Atma, Deva. What is Deva? Deva means the shining one, this consciousness. So this Atma, Turiya, consciousness, they are all one thing, the same thing. This alone, uh, with the limitations of body and mind, it itself projects mind, body and all of that and becomes Jivatma. And it itself projects Maya. With, with its own Maya, it becomes Paramatma. And then the Jivatma and Paramatma will have a relationship of worshipper and worshipped. Definitely. If the Jivatma claims, I am God, it's sacrilegious. It's hub it is hubris. It's craziness. You're absolutely a helpless little creature compared to God. And it actually a much, it, it is a sign of wisdom to have faith and belief in God at this point. But what Advaita is talking about is different. It says that both Jivatma and Ishwara are nothing but, but you, the pure consciousness. I'll come to you. Um, you hold on to your questions, don't forget. Also, one more thing I wanted to point out. Oh, there's a talk which I gave in Washington DC this time. It's very interesting, from Ashtavakra. There is, in a 15th chapter, 16th verse. There is um, a verse which says, other than you, the consciousness, there is no Jiva, no Ishwara. What a tremendous thing it, it, it's saying. It's saying exactly the same thing which is said here. Other than you, that means it's the bare consciousness, the pure consciousness. Other than you, the water, there is no bubble, there is no ocean. You alone appear as the wave, it will rise and play about and die away. You alone appear as the vast ocean with all its waves. Water seems so humble and ocean seems so vast and powerful. The entire ocean, it depends for its very existence upon water. The only reality in the ocean, in, in that huge ocean is neither the waves nor the ocean. The only reality and ever the reality is the water only. True or not? This verse, I, I gave a talk on this verse. How I came across this verse was that... Uh, um, we had a most interesting Swami, Swami Nishreya Shananda. I never met him. He was the pioneer in the, our Vedanta work in South Africa many years ago. He was the disciple of Swami Shivananda. Uh, he was an extraordinary Swami. I sometimes used his stories and examples. In the, he used to teach Vedanta in a very creative way. Now I met uh, Swami Brahma Rupananda who is in uh, Washington DC, a very senior Swami. I was telling him, I was reading this book of Nishreshanji's ideas. Just somebody has written it down and they published it for one dollar. But just scattered thoughts. Uh, so I came across this book and I was reading it. And I found this one sentence. The 16th verse of chapter 15 of Ashtavakra says, Other than you, the consciousness, there is no Jiva, there is no Ishwara. And then within brackets, this is the beauty of Nishreshanji. He says, to come to this realization, read verses 4 to 16 of that chapter. And that's all. Nothing else is mentioned there. So I went back to that. I've read it earlier, but I never noticed it. It's a remarkable sequence. Very powerful sequence. You start from 4th verse of 15th chapter and come to the 16th verse. In fact, till the end of the chapter. So that's what I did in Washington, D.C. Other than that, I was reminded of it now. So other than Atma... Other than consciousness, there is no God, there is no Jiva. This understanding is there, this is, this is what Aldous Huxley called the perennial philosophy. This core understanding is there, 
I'll say, make bold to say, without it, religion is superstition. And in front of that I'm saying, but <laughs> this is the fundamental understanding in all religions. Without it, religion is just a tissue of beliefs, of culture, customs, rituals, fine in themselves, their cultural content, but their fundamental truth of all of these religions is this thing. In the Bible you will find, I and my father are one, be still and know that I am God. Now, immediately, dualistic religions, you know, Christianity will say that, no, no, Jesus Christ is God, you are not God. That's also true, from this level, you are the Jiva and Jesus Christ is the avatar of Ishwar, correct. But that's not what the Bible itself said. The actual text of the Bible was, be still and know that I am God. What, Ashtav, what Mandukya is telling you is that all of us can claim that. All of us can claim that, but not as individual beings. Once you realize what you are, you are not even this individual being. What will remain in this individual being? The body will die after some time. The mind keeps changing every day. What is remaining one and constant throughout our lives? That is God. Okay, I'll take the questions. You are first. Yeah. So these terms are precisely defined in Vedanta. This, what you, what is ambiguously called soul in English, is nothing other than the, the sukshma sharira. Atma is consciousness. See, in Vedanta we talk about a tripartite view of the human being. Right now, there is the body. There is the body and there is the mind. I'm sort of analytical. It's not that the mind is the cloud floating behind your head. So this is called subtle body. Technically it has as many as 19 parts in Vedanta. Yes, yes. As many as 19 parts in Vedanta. But uh, basically it consists of the Pranamaya Kosha, the Manomaya Kosha and the Vijnanamaya Kosha. And beyond that is consciousness itself. Atma. Body, this is called gross body, subtle body and consciousness or Atma, the real self. Karana Sharira, I am leaving it out here just to avoid um, confusion. So basically a tripartite and on what basis is this made? On what basis is this division made? On the basis of experience, this is exactly how you see yourself. Note the physical body, tick mark, check, check mark. Yes, physical body. Look inside, thoughts, feelings, emotions, ideas, the personality, subtle body. And the awareness which is aware of all of this, that is the real self, consciousness or Atman. Now Vedanta goes much further than this and says that all of these things are also nothing but the Atman itself. Anyway, so when you said soul, soul is nothing but this. In English also, when we say, he is a good soul, what do we mean? He's good qualities, nice person. Where are qualities? Are they in the physical body? Are they in pure consciousness? They are in the mind, they are in subtle body. So that is what the word soul can, uh, um, refers to. Wait, there are other people with questions. Do you remember your questions? If you ask, yes. You, you, yes. Um, so, um, I think when you said that, um, 
Yes. That, that really resonates with me because um, I can only talk about myself. When I came across uh, reading uh, Shankara, it just completely made sense on a very deep level. I, it was like I always knew this. Yes, that's and very now good. I was seeing it as like, of course, mm. I always knew this. Correct. But there was not, there was no stillness in me. So it's a little bit like doing meditation, and the mind is going here and there, and then you bring it back. And uh, so the stillness just comes slowly. Listen carefully what she is saying. I'll point out something for you. She has noticed there are two things I want to point out. First is the most obvious thing. She experienced the lack of stillness. She understands this whole system. But I experienced the lack of stillness. And uh, here Vedanta says meditation becomes useful. When you say be still, Vedanta, what, what it means is in the Yoga Sutras, Yoga Chitta Vritti Nirodha. Yoga is the cessation of the movements of the mind. So the yogic approach is that you come upon this truth, you realize the truth through stillness. It could be the stillness of prayer and meditation. In the Bible what it means is the stillness of prayer. Yoga is the stillness of meditation. What stillness is that? This is for everybody. There's a beautiful insight here. The first insight is this, but this is the surface insight. I'm going to show you a much more startling insight next. But this is a surface, very valuable insight. What stillness is this? This is stillness of the mind. The mind keeps on breaking out into waves and stilling this mind is what we experience as stillness. When the mind is in waves, we experience it as a lack of stillness. And this is where yoga becomes useful. What yoga do I mean? Not the downward dog. Here I mean the meditation, yoga of meditation, Patanjali yoga. Insight one. Meditation, very useful. You have noticed a problem, lack of stillness. The solution is meditation. Quietness, meditation. Okay. Now the deeper, really valuable insight. You noticed, think about the time when you noticed a lack of stillness. Restlessness of the mind. You said mind going here and there. What noticed that? Was that still or moving? Still. You are always still. You cannot not be still. You have never ever had a problem of being um, you know, not still. The Atman never ever is restless. That's what Shankara Vedanta is. No, no, stay with that. If you stay with it, the solution is instantaneous. If you do not stay with it, the solution is there. It's 30 years of hard meditation. <laughs> if you get it, you get it right now. Your mind will not become still because mind stillness requires meditation. It requires purity. The stillness which matters is the Atman. That stillness, if you recognize it, that's exactly what the Bible is really deeply saying. Be still, know that I am God. If you know that inner, never to be lost stillness, which is perfectly still forever, that is God. Yes? Thank you. Very good, very good. That's a good way of ending today's talk. You, have a, you had a question? My question was that subtle bodies equal to the subtle matter. Yes. So does that age like a growth body? 
Oh, that's a very good question. Nobody ever talks about this. Does subtle matter age like the gross body? No, it doesn't. It remains the same, more or less. Even the gross body does not, the matter constituting the gross body does not age. What ages is the body itself, the system. Yeah. But, but remember, the, uh, the, in Vedantic terminology, the earth, water, air, uh, space, fire, which constitute this physical body, they do not age. What ages is the system put together by the, those elements that deteriorates over age like a machine. So in a machine, for example, the elements which constitute the machine, the iron and the, the hydrogen and the, uh, and the diamond, they do not age. But what ages is the machine itself because it gets old and wear and tear is there. Similarly, subtle body does not age in that way. That doesn't apply to subtle body. Doesn't apply to the physical constituents of the physical body also. The, the subtle body itself. The body is there together. Yes, that is true. That is true. Does it age? Even if it does, the constituent material is, is, is um, so, so fine that there is no possibility of it really aging or decaying or dying. The subtle body is undying. It is continuously changing though. Moment you have experiences, it has changed. Thoughts, emotions, ideas, it changes. It gets the samskaras over a lifetime. And then it goes on from body to body, from lifetime to lifetime. The only, it, it falls apart finally upon realization, upon realization that I am this witness consciousness, not these. I, this, this thing that I am the one consciousness, or rather I am the one consciousness of the entire universe. When you realize that, that is the last lifetime in Vedanta. It, we talk about that, that when that lifetime ends, which means when the physical body of that lifetime ends, the subtle body also falls apart. That doesn't? That doesn't age, but it, it falls apart at that point. At so, the at, the at the time of the end, the uh, karmas of the physical body are exhausted, the physical body dies, there are no future karmas because they have been burnt up in the fire of realization, so to say, and the subtle body does not transmigrate. It does not go from this body to another life to another life. It stops. That is called moksha. The consciousness itself remains as consciousness. It can travel. Yes. It doesn't travel. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. Subtle bodies, it, many people don't understand this. It's a subtle body which travels. Yeah. And the reflected consciousness in the subtle body also will travel with it. Yeah. All right, let's end today. We have really run out of time. Good, but we made a good beginning. This verse is a very powerful verse. Twelfth verse of second chapter. Uh, it really gives you the essence of Vedanta, the one consciousness. I hope it answers your question also. It's a song of spirit. It's a song of oneness and not a falsity of the world. I'm a kind of lone little, uh, lost little reality and everything else is, a fal is false. No, I am the universe. That's what it means. Om Shanti 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 Hare Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu. Good. But that last question you spoke about, the stillness, uh, hold on to that. I made a very important point today. And thank you for the question. Thank you.